Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Greetings, fellow time travelers. Great to have you with me for another journey through time and space. How many journeys like this have we made together? The story of our shared human history and the insights it gives me, gives us. Well, it's certainly BAM for my soul. I, I, I hope it's the same for as many as possible of, of, of the fellow travellers. To help support this podcast and to get extra goodies, sign up to my patreon.com site. Please sign up to my patreon.com site. It's where Paul and I uh, get the financial support that makes everything else possible. Uh, and the more support we get, the more we can do. The presence on patreon.com is simply called Neil Oliver. And I'll hope to see you there. Okay, it's time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. A queen and an emperor, separated by thousands of miles. The lives and reigns of those two powerful leaders run parallel with each other. Despite their long reigns, they have little concern about or contact with one another. But as their lives drew to a close, the paths of the people they ruled over were about to converge, causing a seismic shock that will realign the fates and set the world on a different path. Hi Neil. Last week, our travels took us to the year 1588, as the mighty Spanish Armada was being decimated by a Protestant wind. Where are we this week? Hi Paul. This week we're stepping, gingerly perhaps, into the next century. Uh, By now it's the 1600s, as England and her Queen are making a killer political move. The unforeseen consequences will play out over the next few centuries and have a profound impact on the shape of the world to come. Well, we're in, uh, well, we, I suppose we're kind of kick off in England, but we end up in the Indian subcontinent. This is actually a story that, believe it or believe it not, it, it was really, it was in my mind for the longest time because of a fun little pub fact that I knew about chess that I had picked up along the road, I don't know, when I was a teenager, I suppose. I've never been much of a chess player, but I've always been quite fascinated by the game of chess. There's so much about it, the depth of it, uh, and the you know the intellect that, that, that goes into it, and the, the strategising and all of the rest of it. I've, al- I've always been interested by chess as a metaphor, uh, for for strategy and everything about it. Anyway, so like it, we'll get to it. It'll become apparent what I mean. But I, it, this was one of those little nuggets. I, I always have. I'm always putting away things 
that I then, sometime later, I work them into a book or, or whatever. This is one of those. We've talked uh, already in the love letter to the world about Akbar the Great and Queen Elizabeth I of England. Akbar was, um, was one of the Mughal emperors one of the leaders of the Mughal Empire that cast such a shadow over or, or had such an influence upon much of the Indian subcontinent for a long period of time. Akbar, he was descended from Babur, <laughs> that we've talked about. Babur, which is uh, a nickname for a very powerful individual, the tiger, the lion, whatever, Babur. So, to get into it, it's a story of lives, to some extent lived on parallel tracks, that towards the end of both lives those which had been running parallel began to converge in a way that would change everything, change the world. Queen Elizabeth I, good Queen Bess, whatever you want to call her or remember her as, she died on the 24th of March 1603. She was 69, which is a good innings for someone living in the 16th and 17th centuries. And by the time she fell off her perch, she'd been 40 years queen, which is amazing. That was a kind of a record that, that wasn't really challenged until Queen Elizabeth II, our late monarch, Victoria and so on, but it was it was a good run. On the other side of the world, or pretty much, you've got Akbar the Great. Akbar was the third of the Mughal. Mughal is a what would you say? It's a corruption of Mongol, which is to say the time of the of the the rise to dominance of, of Islam and Islamic rulers in the subcontinent. And Akbar was the grandson of Babur, the legendary figure in, in terms of the growth of the Mughal Empire. He died on the 27th of October, 1605. So he died a couple of years after Elizabeth. Uh, he was 63, so a little bit younger, but still good going. And he had been 46 years on the throne. So he lived a, a slightly shorter life, but he spent more of it on the throne. So two impressive figures. It's quite amazing to think of those two, a man and a woman and, and born into and living in such different circumstances. Well, obviously, uh, royalty. However, very different worlds that each of them inhabited. And as I say, their lives had been on parallel tracks. The extent to which the one was aware of the other, who, who could say? Although, you know, no doubt, you, you know, they undoubtedly would have been aware of one another. But, you know, but they, they probably didn't think that they were doing anything that was running parallel to the other. However, as I say, as their lives and reigns drew to a close, what had been parallel train tracks, if you like, never touching, something happened and they started to come together. And the fates and the destinies of England slash Britain and the Indian subcontinent just started to come together. And let's just, let's just presume that neither Elizabeth nor Akbar could really have imagined the consequences. That said, I mean, the coming together did happen while they were both still alive. On New Year's Eve 1600, right, so the 31st of December, as 1599 turned into 1600, Queen Elizabeth chaired a meeting of a group who had come to her with a pitch, a business plan. And by the end of it, she had granted to this group of aspirant merchants, a royal charter. And it was a royal charter to the Honourable Company of Merchants of London trading into the East Indies. It's very interesting how in terms of 
titles, book titles and company names, in the past they were a lot less than catchy. <laughs> they were always they were always much more descriptive than they are now. Nobody was going for anything anything memorable. Uh, but it was the Honourable Company of Merchants of London trading to the East Indies. And that was what became, in good time, well, I say good time, the, the British East India Company that, as names go, is probably more familiar to, to listeners. And it, undoubtedly, undoubtedly, at, at that beginning, as 1599 turned into 1600, it was just a straightforward money-making venture. Just a bunch of guys that had realised that there was a great deal of money to be made out east and they wanted needed royal protection or royal assent for what they had in mind. Cut the royals in and you get to do what you want. Uh, but although it was a moneymaker to begin with, by the end, the British East India Company ruled the subcontinent in all but name, which is amazing. It's got more modern parallels. If you think about something like Apple or Google, you know, that, that start out... Well, we're, we're certainly invited to imagine that they start out just as small businesses by ambitious individuals. Thereby hangs a tail. But who could imagine the, the global reach of those entities within the lifetimes of the founders? So I, I mentioned this came about for me and it found its way eventually into the story because of a nugget that I had sort of retained. The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Omar Khayyam was a, a Persian poet, thinker, and the Rubaiyat is a, a, you know, a, a, an impossibly famous work that's been translated and translated over and over again. My mum had committed to memory chunks of <laughs> the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. In fact, she used to say, she would, she would trot out a line of it and say the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, and that, that all came out as one big long word. It was years before I even kind of parsed and unpicked the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam and began to contemplate what it meant. But one of the, one of the lines that she used to trot out to me was, to, anytime I was um, complaining about how unfortunate I had been <laughs> subject to fate in some way when I was at school, she'd say, "'Tis all a checkerboard of nights and days where destiny with men for pieces plays. Hither and thither moves and mates and slays and one by one back in the closet lays.'" Right, so that's a that's a that's a line. It's, that, that's a translation of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam by an, an Englishman called Edward Fitzgerald. What it means is that you've always got to bear in mind, or you can you can invite yourself to think that things happen because God is playing with us. That it's all a game. Plays into that idea of the Matrix, doesn't it? This idea that everything is just a game, and and God has us as pieces that He just moves about on the board. So for the long, for, from the longest time ago, I, I picked up on that line and had it. It was always there. It was always there in the back of my mind, this idea of a, of a checkerboard. But to the matter in hand, this, uh, what became the British East India Company, it started out basically with Queen Elizabeth granting 218 English merchants a monopoly. The audacity of it. She granted them a monopoly on trade in all lands east of the Cape of Good Hope. You know, where do these people get off? It's like that Treaty of Tordesillas, uh, the 15th century treaty, whereby the Pope agreed that Portugal got everything in the east and Spain got everything in the west of a line just off the west coast of Africa. It's that kind of madness. And especially, especially because at that time, Queen Elizabeth, she was barely a big player in Europe. By the end of her reign, she had established for herself a certain prestige and a certain position, but nobody would have thought of 
Elizabeth and or her England as a truly global player in 1600. She was up and coming and England was on the make and on the march, but had done little or nothing that would have enabled them seriously or justifiably to claim position as a global player or a significant piece on the board. And she herself, let's start playing with this metaphor, this analogy of a chessboard. She was a minor piece on the board. On the checkerboard of the world, Queen Elizabeth of England was minor. What she was hemmed in by, if you like, she was kind of cornered on the board. She was unable to move because she was crippled by national debt. England was up to its, up to its neck in debt which was severely limiting her ability to move. And that, that would play into why she was interested in granting this monopoly to these merchants, because you know anything they got, she would get. So she would be thinking long-term about paying off some of the national debt. It's important to bear in mind the contrast between her and Akbar. Now, Akbar was great at that time. You know, while they were both still alive, he was... He was a significant figure. The Mughal Empire in the subcontinent was one of the most powerful empires in the world at that time, without a doubt. You know, just to put it in context, the population of his city of Calcutta was bigger than the population of England. Right. So he was presiding over an empire in which the population of just one city amongst many was bigger than all the human beings that Queen Elizabeth of England could lay claim to. And then, we, yeah, I suppose we get to the point, really, where I think about chess. And chess came out of Persia, that which became Iran, but it came out of Persia around 600 AD, right? so you know, 1,500 years ago. And at the time, by whatever means it had been invented, on the board there was no such thing as a queen. The piece that occupied the space of the piece we know as the Queen, was called the advisor. And it was it was a non-entity on the board, really, by comparison to what we think of as the Queen in the game of chess. And always in the game of chess at that time, it was all about the King. King was most important of all, which it still is. But in relation to him, that other piece, the advisor, was, you know, much of, of much lesser significance. And chess in that form, travelled west in the hands of merchants who were coming back out of the east via the Silk Road and into Europe and so on. And the game of chess was one of the things that they just happened to bring with them. You know, a sort of a collateral benefit of interest to the people of Europe. And it arrived into a Europe which happened to be on the cusp of change. And this is significant. Sometime after some considerable time after the arrival of chess, Europe changed in a way that it had never changed before. And to be specific about that, between 1362 and 1654, 18 women ruled as queens in 13 different European countries. Now that was quite a deal, you know, because ruling was always a man's game. Kings and emperors women, if they ever came to any kind of power, it was always by accident, really. It was always because there wasn't a man to lay claim to whatever was at stake. But a sequence, an unprecedented sequence of events, 
between the mid 14th century and the mid 17th century meant that there were 18 queens. So the role, the role of powerful women emerged into the consciousness in a way that it had never emerged before. People were invited to, to notice that a woman could be as powerful as a man. During that period, you had figures like Isabel of Castile and Catherine of Aragon and Mary Tudor and Elizabeth I. So the world, the world was changing at that point, or, or there was something new at least being stirred into the mix to make everything more interesting, I suppose, more, more complicated. Mary Queen of Scots, you know, there was another one. You know, these, these figures had emerged at that time. And interestingly, during that period, the chess piece, the advisor, changed enormously and it acquired more and more power. In straightforward terms, it acquired the moving flexibility of the rook and the bishop combined. That ability to move the length of the board diagonally and backwards and forwards, which it had never been able to do. And it was renamed. That piece which had been the advisor was renamed as the queen in recognition of its significance and its power. And something else we've touched on numerous times in the story of the world, the Gutenberg printing press was out there thumping away, circulating information far and wide as never before. And amongst everything else, the rules of chess were being formalised and circulated as never before. And the form of chess that was circulated by the Gutenberg press had the all-powerful queen. So once it was out there in the form of a, of a pamphlet or a book of rules, it went everywhere and it was incontrovertible. That was it. The position of the queen in chess was now, well, everybody understood it. And here we finally get to the, the kind of nugget of, of chess ephemera that I learned long ago when I was a wee boy. If you know about chess at all, you know about check and checkmate. Check is when the king is threatened by another piece and checkmate is when it's all over. Well, it comes from the Persian Shamat, the Shah, you know, the Shah of Iran. Well, Shamat is Persian and it means the king is beyond help. It's like dead. The king is dead. Or at least he's, he's helpless now. But Shamat was rendered into English as checkmate. And Shah, which is the king is, is threatened, became Czech. And I always loved that. I used to be playing chess with someone or I'd be being beaten at chess more often than not and I would try and distract them with <laughs> this bit of pub trivia. So all of this was happening and you could say it's tenuous to make the link between what was happening to the game of chess and what was happening in the world but I don't know, I think there's reasons for thinking that there are dotted lines at least that you could move between them. To get back to those two personalities uh, specifically, as his reign due to close, Akbar was certainly a lot less than helpless. He was never helpless. But the world was changing. And the move that on the other side of the world Queen Elizabeth was making in giving that royal charter to those merchants, whether either of them realised that it would change the world. As I say, the Mughal Empire was all-powerful on the subcontinent for a period of time, running into you know decades and centuries. After Akbar, so Akbar dies in 1605 and he's succeeded by his son Jahangir. And after Jahangir came Shah Jahan. And 
It was Shah Jahan who commissioned the Taj Mahal as a, a mausoleum for his favourite wife. Shah Jahan, though towards the end of his life, was imprisoned by his third son, so his youngest son, Aurangzeb, who was a very ambitious individual who had, amongst other things, sidestepped his own elder brothers in his pursuit of power. And so he got past his brothers, if you like, on the chessboard of life, and then he finally mated, <laughs> checkmated his own dad, imprisoned him, and took control. And Aurangzeb was a was a horse of a different colour, really, in terms of what the Mughal emperors had been before him. Babur, from which it all came, who was his ancestor, had always been tolerant of religions. That was a fundamental. He was a kind of a, you know, um, justice for all, let's be tolerant, let's all just rub along together. And actually, Babur had said that all religions should get along together. And Akbar the Great had even gone so far as to try and bring together, as one, Hinduism, Islam and Zoroastrianism. He, he had actually tried to make a, a hybrid religion out of all of it, but it had failed. But, but fail or not, at least that was the abiding intention of the individual at the top. But Aurangzeb was a zealot. He decreed that Islam and only Islam. And he persecuted and did away with everybody else, Zoroastrians, Christians, Buddhists, Jains, Hindus, everyone. It, it was Islam or nothing. He destroyed temples. He enforced jizya, which is an Islamic tax that's payable by non-Muslims to Muslims. So, okay, you're not a Muslim, but the consequence of that is that you pay Muslims for the privilege of existing. So, as a first, Aurangzeb introduced jizya to the subcontinent, well, to the, to the territory defined as the, as the Mughal Empire. As you can imagine, that kind of behaviour was not uniformly appreciated, and it provoked rebellion. What do we call it nowadays? Pushback. Aurangzeb caused pushback, specifically and significantly further south, in the sort of midlands of the Indian subcontinent, the Deccan Plateau, which was a Hindu homeland, and they pushed, they pushed back. So what Aurangzeb inadvertently provoked was the creation of the Maratha Empire, a Hindu empire, which was in the end committed to Hindu self-rule. So he, that's what he triggered, you know, where the tolerant tendencies of his predecessors had allowed a, 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 a piece of sorts. But by trying to impose Islam on the totality, he, he created, he inadvertently led to the creation of the Maratha Empire, which would cause all kinds of trouble. And by the time Aurangzeb died, which was 1707, he had basically set in place the foundations of what would be his successor's undoing. You know that line about, he that troubleth his own house shall inherit the wind. Well, there it was with Aurangzeb and the, the effect that he had ultimately on the Mughal Empire. He helped to sow its destruction. And, you know, not only, but also, while that unrest that he, that he triggered was, was playing out, Muslim fighting Hindu, uh, uh, Mughal fighting Maratha, they got distracted with one another. The Indian subcontinent became preoccupied with what was happening there and overlooked what was happening elsewhere on the great chessboard of the world. 
the great geopolitical chessboard for long enough they stopped paying attention to what else was happening and to what other pieces, hitherto insignificant pieces, were moving. So, Fort Madras, or Fort George in Madras, was set up by the English in 1639. Okay, so England now has a, a physical fortified foothold on the subcontinent. By the turn of the 18th century, so less than a century later, the English were in Bombay, they were in Calcutta, and the Portuguese were meddling in the subcontinent, and the French were there meddling. And as I say, this is all happening in the context of the peoples of the subcontinent being preoccupied with their own business. In the year that Aurangzeb died, which I've already mentioned, which is 1707, that was when England and Scotland came together as one. They dissolved the independent parliament of England and the independent parliament of Scotland were both dissolved simultaneously and the parliament of Britain was sparked into existence. And so from that point on, right through the 18th century, British, for the first time, British pieces, if you like, rooks and castles and bishops and pawns were all on the move. And some of those movements were happening on the Indian subcontinent. And while Mughal was distracted by Maratha and vice versa, the British were on the move, on their patch. And what did they have in mind? Checkmate. The Earth is the centre of the universe, or so it was thought for the longest time. Two great minds meet and help to upend those ancient assumptions. Observation, recording data, and testing new ideas leads to great strides in understanding. A union of lives lived that was definitely not in vain. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Uh, check out the Instagram account. It's called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called the Neil Oliver Channel. Please go there and subscribe. Uh, the more the merrier and the, the more people we have, the more clout we generate. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us because they don't know what they're missing. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. The music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. The finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. podcast production. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. warbyparker.com covered.